Everybody kiss the face of Sandra. Everybody kiss her face. Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and each episode I'll be hitting a novice author's first page with a disintegrator cannon, and then boom, the twist was... It was just an evil twin first page, and the real brilliant first page was gagged and bound in a janitor's cupboard all along. Hooray! I don't know if goodies are supposed to use disintegrator cannons on their foes. Maybe I'm part of that new breed of morally complex heroes who do murders, but also feel stuff. Procrastination. Do you do it? My most common conversation with my fellow writers goes like this. Me. How's your writing going? Them. Uh, yeah. Fine haven't done any for a while. I need to get back to it. And that's it. What the fuck is going on, people? Are we just a raft of useless, bone-idle turds? Or is something else going on? Well, I've been wrestling with this myself. I've just been through a year of really bad procrastination. Pathological procrastination. And we usually joke about it. Oh, ho, ho. Isn't it a lark how I'm wasting my life? How I can't do things I care about? But actually, when you really get down to it, procrastination makes a lot of us completely miserable. Anxious, stressed, disappointed, unfulfilled. It's horrible. And the joking masks that, but it doesn't fucking fix it. And you know what? For ages I thought I was procrastinating because I was lazy, perverse, hopeless, spineless and incompetent. All the good stuff. And I'd tell myself that when I sat down to work or when I thought about the writing I still had left to do. I'd be like, come on, man, you have to fucking crack this. You're running out of time, right? Next week, we clear the decks. You're at your desk 7am Monday morning. We power through till midnight Sunday. No breaks, no slacking off, just chaining power hours into a mega combo. Kick the dick off this fucker. You have to do this. You have to do this because you're running out of time and you're fucking up and you've had too much leisure time and you can't be trusted. So, Tim... This is the only way. Guess what? Never worked. Got worse, in fact. It turns out associating writing with an onerous slog where all my privileges and joys have to be removed and I'm under a time constraint made it feel stressful. And what's a quick way to relieve stress? Playing video games and jaying off, which strangely fails to boost self-esteem. So then you come to do the task and you go, Ugh, I can't manage this. I'm going to prove that critical voice telling me I'm fucking worthless. Right. And so you dodge it. Lose more confidence, procrastinate to avoid the stress, etc. Et bloody cetera. Now, admittedly, I haven't perfectly beaten my procrastination, but here's what's been working for me over the last two weeks. Here's Tim Clare's six procrastination tips. Yeah, I guess I'll come back in later and edit a more snappy title in post. Maybe a theme song. One. Police yourself talk. No more, I've got to do this. No more, I really need to knuckle down and get back into it. You'll notice it most when talking to others, but watch your own thoughts too. You don't need to write. You can if you'd like, but don't try to guilt or bully yourself into doing it because you'll subconsciously associate writing with horrible duty. Two, schedule time off. Actually commit to having one full day off a week where you're not allowed to do any writing at all, not even glancing at notes. I've been doing this and my productivity the following five days shot up. Suddenly, I wanted to get back to it. Suddenly, I cared. Three, use a timer. I have a little R2-D2 kitchen timer. I've, I've got it. Got him here. And I, I, I set him... There he is, ticking away. And he gets, to, he gets to the end and he goes... Just like the real R2-D2. Um, 
I set him in 30 minute increments. While he's ticking, I'm not allowed to go on social media or my phone or leave my seat. I just write. When he rings, I get up and immediately reward myself with a break, maybe a little peek on Facebook, whatever. He's great. He makes starting unintimidating. I just have to get through half an hour. And if I can't write anything in that time, no matter. The important thing is turning up. Four, start as early as you can. The key thing for me is trying to squeeze that first 30-minute session in as early in my day as I can, before breakfast if possible. That way, it kills a lot of the anxiety around starting. The rest comes much easier. I would, as a little cheeky caveat, add, don't, however, use that as an excuse to not write. Some people say, I need to put aside a whole day for writing. I need a full eight hours. You don't. If all the time you've got is 30 minutes a day, that's perfect. That's wonderful. That is acres of time for you to write your masterpiece or your lovely little short story. And R2D2 or your generic substitute can help in that. 30 minutes is all you need. So don't use this idea of starting early. If you can only start late, that's fine as well. But if you do have a whole day in front of you, starting as early as you can is a good way of breaking the tension. Five, motivate yourself through rewards, not criticism or shame. Procrastination comes from fear. If you try to bully yourself into writing through visions of the horrible, dire consequences of not writing, you'll only make that fear much more powerful. So instead, make sure at the end of each 30-minute writing session, you do something nice for yourself. By all means, have a biscuit, watch a YouTube channel you like, text a friend, reward, reward, reward. You deserve it. Six, don't be perfectionist. Perfectionism is the death of creativity, the death of productivity. Well done for doing your best, which is all you can do. You'll get a chance to be a super judgmental douchebag to yourself during the editing process. Don't worry, I'm not denying you quality control, but for now, don't get it perfect. Just get it writ. And I want to say these have worked for me. They genuinely have worked for me. I was so scared that if I stopped metaphorically whipping myself and scolding myself, I would just slough apart into this doughy mess and I would never write again. Because look how lazy I am when I'm being mean to myself all the time. Surely if I take that away, I'm going to become absolutely catatonically useless. Guess what? I didn't because I wasn't lazy. I was anxious and I feel I don't want to sound like Bill Murray at the end of Scrooged. I actually do. That's a lie. But you can have this change as well. Some of you don't suffer from procrastination. And I'm so pleased for you because that is a wonderful way to go into your writing. But if you do, even a little bit, I just want to say, be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. People used to say that to me and I was so fucking frightened. I was like, you don't know how shit I am. You don't. That is the worst thing I can do to myself is be kind to myself. I'll fuck things up like you would never believe, but I didn't because it was actually that shitty voice constantly slagging me off in my own head that kept me from getting back to the writing that I love. It's not made my writing any better. It's not meant that the stuff I've been producing in the past few weeks has been any higher quality, but I've sat at the fucking computer and I've fucking written and it feels so good. And on that note, let's get down to business. As always, if you'd like to read a text version of today's extract, you can find one in the show notes on my website, timclairpoet.co.uk. If you'd like to submit your fiction to the show, wait till the end for details on how to do that. Today's piece is called Fiddies, and it's by someone who wants to be known as D. Get you another? I lift my glass. Light. Nearly empty. 
Ice cubes swell, but no longer clink. Sure. Same again? Thanks. She's not wearing heels. Comfortable flats. I can barely hear her footfalls as she walks away down the bar. The door clatters as someone leaves. There's frost in the draught that swells past my stool. One more clatter as the door swings shut, and everything is still again. By my count, I'm the last customer. There ya, hun. 6.50. I hand her three notes. One from the left pocket, two from the right. Thanks. Thanks for the drink. You busy? Not so busy tonight, hun. Quiet night, huh? A finger taps my hand. I open it. Two coins. I pocket them. Uh Uh-huh. It's pretty cold out. Southern accent. Tennessee, maybe. A long way from home. You mind talking a while? You got things you need to take care of, you let me know. The smallest of pauses. No, hun. I can talk. I sip my drink. Bonfire smoke and Christmas. Do you know the worst thing about being blind? No, hun. She's wary. What's that? The worst thing about being blind, I take another sip, is not being able to see anything anymore. She laughs, relieved if not actually amused, and after a moment I join in. One more sip, the glass cooled and clean in my hand. Run my finger round the rim. A patch of rough. Old lipstick, probably. Not so clean. And here's my edits. I I first want to apologise profusely for my accent in the dialogue of that piece. I wasn't going to rush the particular machine gun nest of trying to do a Tennessee accent, so I just did it in my sub-radio for Estuary English. I realised I was not doing it justice. Apologies. Here's my cuts. Get you another? I lift my glass. Light, nearly empty. Ice cubes swell but no longer clink. Sure. So, the dialogue here is fine. It doesn't read as ridiculous. It's not too long. It's comprehensible. I like the description of the glass, especially the final line. Ice cubes swell but no longer clink. That's a well-observed little detail. Not ostentatious, just small and true, to the extent that it helps me believe in the reality of your fictional world. It reminds me of the bit in Things Fall Apart where a conquo reaches into his goatskin bag searching for his snuff bottle. It was a deep bag and took almost the whole length of his arm. It contained other things apart from his snuff bottle. There was a drinking horn in it and also a drinking gourd, and they knocked against each other as he searched. I find it strange and rather marvellous that that little sensory detail, the sound of the Gordon horn knocking together, makes that scene utterly real for me. Literariness is not about being showy or polysyllabic, it's about being awake. And that's what I think you've got in the ice cube line, an acuity of detail. I don't think you need nearly empty between light and the ice cube swell, though. You're just repeating yourself there. Same again? Thanks. I mean, yeah, plausible dialogue. It's fine again so d d dog the d meister hello thank you for your submission by now you've probably detected a palpable dearth of enthusiasm in my tone why is that well i can tell you i'm not trying to be a snide douche i I really hope i don't come across as continually rolling my eyes when people send in their first pages the point isn't to be uncharitable and shitty it's to hold your work to the brilliant standards i know you want to meet the ones i know you can achieve it's not that there's anything wrong with writing advice that says Go you! God knows we can all use a boost from time to time. I just... I think it's patronising to stop at fine or good. We need a North Star to follow. And our North Star is 
gripping. Our North Star is exceptional. We won't ever reach our North Star, but that's fine, because if we did, we'd be 433 light years from Earth in the middle of a yellow supergiant with a temperature of 6,015 degrees Kelvin. If there's a lesson in all this, it's don't ever achieve your dreams, otherwise you'll go on fire in space. What I'm trying to get at, Dee, is... Where's the hook here? Where's the tension? Where's the story drawing us in? I'm not saying every novel has to start with a bombastic teaser sentence like The bomb was in my dick. Although, come on, you would read the hell out of that. But you need to suggest some kind of conflict or intrigue. And look, I know there's a reveal coming up. Your narrator is blind, which isn't a compelling revelation, but is certainly an interesting detail. But you can't mortgage your first few lines against the security of something more engaging happening halfway down the page. We don't know that yet. There's no pull or tension. It's just a deathly mundane conversation in a bar. Absolutely believable. Absolutely generic. Could be happening anywhere in America at any time in the past 150 years. The dynamic between the two characters isn't novel or engaging. As customer and bartender, they both have prescribed roles, and they're both fulfilling them well but without any especial flair. You might as well show someone purchasing a pop-up tent from Amazon or opening a can of Borlotti beans while they're on hold to buy tickets for My Fair Lady. At least in the latter scenario, there's a frisson of mild peril. Will the tickets left be restricted view? Will he lose a bean while draining them? Your narrator doesn't appear to have anything driving them. As far as we know, they're just idly killing time, and no one is acting upon them to challenge that. Where's the story? She's not wearing heels. Comfortable flats. I can barely hear her footfalls as she walks away down the bar. So, having read the whole extract, I can see what you're going for here. The narrator knows what shoes she's wearing by listening, which is mm, kind of interesting, quite interesting. But the order of information encourages us to process this visually rather than orally. I suggest you swap the last sentence to first place. Also, cut the modal verb can, which adds nothing. The revised chunk reads, I barely hear her footfalls as she walks away down the bar. She's not wearing heels. Comfortable flats. The door clatters as someone leaves. There's frost in the draught that swells past my stool. One more clatter as the door swings shut and everything is still again. By my count, I'm the last customer. So this is the first point at which I start to feel anything approaching the merest sliver of tension, because it sounds like the narrator is building up to something. He or she is waiting for the last customer to leave the bar. Woo, creepy, right? Well, no, as it turns out. Nothing exciting or unusual happens after that, but just because there's no payoff doesn't mean this bit doesn't have an inherent pull of intrigue. And oh, go on then. As a bonus, let's do a bit of stylistic nitpicking that everyone can apply to their own work. That second sentence... There's frost in the draught that swells past my stool. Try to avoid sentences where the main verb is some variation of to be. So here the main verb is is. There is frost in the draught. When you write there is or there was or the building was or the man was, you're leaning on static portraiture over action. Occasionally you might choose the former as an effect, but mostly you won't because it's dull as balls. Make your main verbs interesting. A frosty draught swells past my stool. Or, if you want to emphasise that he's picking out the frost, you could shift that noun to the end. A draught swells past my stool, spiked with frost. Remember, you want each sentence to end with the most interesting bit of information. There ya, hun. 6.50. I hand her three notes. One from the left pocket, two from the right. Thanks. I mean, look. 
Not all dialogue has to be Hamlet soliloquy, but if two people are just exchanging banal functional pleasantries, you'd sure as shit better make sure that we know one of them is an android sent from the future to assassinate the other and that the other knows this and all this seemingly bullshit chatter is actually a delicate game of social poker as both sides figure out their next move. I have no idea what's going on with that multi-pocket cash plucking either. Oh wait, no. Actually, I think I've just figured it out on about the eighth read. Is it because the narrator keeps different denominations in different pockets, so they're taking a five from the left and two single dollar bills from the right? Which, yeah, knowing that now, as a detail, it's fine, but also a bit opaque and annoying, partly because we don't know he's blind yet, and partly because we're desperate for something, anything, that might be the first stirrings of an actual fucking plot. Thanks for the drink. You busy? Not so busy tonight, hun. Quiet night, huh? Oh, sweet Jesus. Not even a sword fight on a burning zeppelin would make these lines interesting. Yes, they're very convincing, but that's all they are. You're allowed to write about real life in fiction, but that doesn't mean you've got a license to replicate all the boring parts, as if doing so grants the work serious, gritty fidelity. Don't get me wrong. On one level, D, this is good dialogue. You've captured the distinct rhythms and phrasing of two different speakers. But there's no magic spark of motivation igniting the scene and driving it forward. And so, competent though it is, the dialogue is also bollocks. Which is a trap we all fall into. I know I do. Great dialogue comes out of characters with conflicting needs and goals and great status dynamics. But your protagonist doesn't really want much in this scene yet. And the barmaid's goals don't especially conflict with his. She's kind of fine with talking to him, if unenthusiastic. And he doesn't really seem to need her approval and doesn't care so much if he's entertaining her. It's a very lacklustre, thumb-twiddly sort of moment to fictionalise and an especially uninspiring one to open a novel with. This isn't a failure in you, Dee. I'm sure you're a lovely, engaging person. It's not even a failure in your writing craft, sentence by sentence. It's just an unwinnable scenario. And I, I really say this to all fiction writers listening. If a scene insists on being crap, edit after edit, ask yourself, is anything at stake here? Sometimes you can't write it well because the characters are just smoking a fag in the wings waiting for the next big set piece. And you don't always need to show that. You mind taking a while? You've got things you need to take care of, you let me know. The smallest of pauses. No, hun, I can talk. So, I quite like this. The tension in the pause is mildly interesting. Not compelling, which is the standard I think you ought to be shooting for, but I like the awkwardness. The two characters' goals are in implied conflict here, albeit mild implied conflict, and it's interesting, albeit mildly. Just imagine if the barmaid was less generic. Just imagine if the protagonist really wanted something out of this scene and was trying to get it. We could rise from mildly to the giddy heights of moderately. Do you know the worst thing about being blind? No, hun. She's wary. What's that? The worst thing about being blind, I take another sip, is not being able to see anything anymore. Yeah, so that's a good piece of dialogue. Or it would be, if it existed within a scene where the protagonist was doing something other than being performatively blind. As it is, 
it rather falls into the unfortunate trope of blind-stroke wheelchair-bound character makes sardonic reference to their disability to make able-stroke sighted characters feel comfortable around them. We learn precisely jack and shit about this narrator in this first page, except the fact that he or she is blind. They're allowed to be blind, they're allowed to make reference to it, they're allowed to care about it or even be bitter about it, but unless you give them a story to exist in, they feel less like a protagonist and more like an exoticized carnival attraction. Behold, the incredible eyeless barfly imprisoned in a world of eternal darkness. Marvel as he accurately gauges the volume of alcohol in a glass tumbler. Gasp as he makes complex meteorological predictions using only his legs. Swoon as he uses money like a real person. Quirky outsider narrators may periodically send the middlebrow literary world all a flutter, but the only thing they excite in me is gibbering conniptions. Give us a story. And that's it. If you'd like to submit work for a future episode, please go to timclapper.co.uk and click the link in the show notes to our submission guidelines. Please do consider leaving a review for the show on iTunes as it makes us easier to find and try subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. I've got a novel out called The Honours. If you enjoyed this show at all and you want to show me some love, order it now. Buy it. Bing. Done. The circle is complete. Until next time, keep writing. And also... Be nice to yourself.